I'm Alexandra Kreis and you're listening to Outer Travel in a Journey. Hello and welcome back to Outer Travel in a Journey. Today I'm sitting down with Jody O'Neill, who is a playwriter and actor based in Wicklow. And um, she is the author of the play that recently finished, What I Don't Know About Autism. Jody, hello and welcome to the show. Hello, thank you very much. Thank you for coming and speaking to us about your show. I I really was intrigued to see that you're doing this show. I was even more intrigued because, mom, you know, in the wake of writing that play, as I understood it, you discovered that you're autistic yourself. Is that right? Or did one come before the other? How did that no, come No, together? that's exactly right. It kind of came, um, I suppose, the journey of the play started in 2016. And that's when autism, I thought, came into my life. Um, in fact, it was a good deal earlier. Um, but I suppose at that time, um, my son was diagnosed with autism and we had a little bit of very superficial knowledge about what autism is. Um, mm. And so we, I think as a parent, you're quite vulnerable in that moment and you listen to the experts um, and any advice that they can offer you. So we were given advice and we thought, okay, this is great because A, we still have exactly the same child that we had yesterday. Um, but now we have um, maybe a pathway to some support yes. uh, for him in the areas that are tricky, such as anxiety, which would be a big thing for um, autistic people generally. Yeah. Um, and we had what we thought was some really solid advice from them, um, which was to go and find an ABA therapist. ABA is Applied Behavioral Analysis, and it's a mm. behavior modification technique, uh, which is very popular in Ireland at the moment. Um, so we were to go and find an ABA therapist and essentially, I suppose, set out on a path to kind of typicalize our son. Yes. Uh, and as it happened, we didn't find an ABA therapist. So I went and studied ABA um, myself um, on a 10-week course. Um, wow. And we kind of had mixed feelings coming out of it. Um, so uh, one of the things is, I guess my son is really smart. So um, any kind of attempts at, at sort of trying ABA at home resulted in um, us being ABA'd. So, <laughs> so he, he was very quick to figure out, okay, um, if I line up all my toys um, yes. on the windowsill and if you like those toys, they can be yours if you just keep the noise down. Yes. Um, so it's based on, it's very much like based on the Pavlov um, dog response you know yeah, where you, you do yeah. something for for a reward um, and it, it didn't it, it didn't seem to hold much benefits for us um, and so we started rooting around in other areas and we were just I think really lucky um, that we started to come across more and more material that was being generated by autistic people and autistic adults um, wow. online and then that set us on the path of reading and as a parent I felt like well okay then the autistic adults are the experts because they're the ones with the lived experience of being autistic. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe these are the people we should be listening to. And these people are saying, 
do not get an ABA therapist. Um, and, uh, and so we didn't. Um, and, um, and, you know, they were also saying, you know, except, you know, your child is, is the child that you have. Like people talk about this awful thing that just, and it, it, I, I just, you know, obviously everybody's entitled to react emotionally the way they react, but people talk a lot about uh, going through a period of grieving for the child that they thought that they would have. Wow. Um, and I find that really um, kind of just upsetting and offensive because actually mm. in the meantime, while it's, you're off busy grieving for the child you thought you had, there's a very real child in front of you. Yes. Um, who's the same child that they were before you got this label and mm. who actually really just needs to communicate with you. And, and the fact that you're off grieving for some non-existent being um, is not going to be very useful for them at that time in their life. So, um, so as, a par- as parents, we found this really interesting, but also as an artist, I kind of was finding the material fascinating. Um, I'm not involved in politics, so I can't really be lobbying for policy changes and things like that. But I thought, okay, well, if I can do something to get this material out into the public eye, well, maybe I can do it through playwriting. Um, Wonderful. And so I applied for a bursary from the Arts Council. Sorry, this is a very long answer. Um, but I applied for a bursary from the Arts Council to research and develop making work that um, promotes autism acceptance mm. um, more so than autism awareness, because we all know that autism exists and we all mm. understand something about autism, but what's real acceptance? What does that look like? Wow. Um, and that's quite a different thing. So that was in 2017. And as I kept reading and kept researching and one book would lead to another, and it was just an amazing kind of organic journey, I suppose, with discovery. And hmm. um, more and more, I mean, I had always had the sense that um, my, I have, you know, a really strong bond with my son and that we are so alike um, and we articulate our experiences differently, but we have so much in common. And so as I was reading and reading more about, I suppose, the female autistic experience and how that differs from the male autistic ex- experience, oh. I kind of had a sort of a gradual dawning of, ah, okay, this is why um, I am the way I am. This is why my life has been the way it has been up until this yeah. point. This is why I'm really lucky to have this really strong connection with my son. Um, mm. You know, apart from the fact that, you know, we share a lot of genetic um, content and a home um but you know that there's we i suppose are both neurodivergent as thinkers and um, mm. and so it was a very gradual realization so not a shocking realization in any way yeah. um and a self-realization and then i and then in june of last year i had that backed up by you know a professional diagnosis wow And, you know, there were two things going through my mind. I mean, I do know what you're saying about um, stereotyping people with autism. You know, the first thing that comes to my mind from my generation is Rain Man. You know, that's the first time we heard of it. And immediately we have these thoughts. While I have been surrounded in scenes that I worked in and lived in by people who seemed autistic to me. But it's almost like you cannot say it because then they think they are some sort of sick or ill, you know, (laughs) I was thinking like, but they're not, it's just a different, I mean, asking you now in, in this very kind of expression of that I'm doing is like, is it, 
at the end of the day, I know you, Jody. You know, I know you through my yoga classes, and it would have never occurred to me to come across as we don't know each other that intimately, to be honest. You know, <laughs> but so that I could have observed you in a different context, but it never seemed to me you're autistic. So where is that expression for you? There's so many fine lines. It seems to me I kind of dipped into it a little bit, but not really. Uh, extravagantly as you um, surrounded with the circumstances you have what is it that may that draws the fine line or is there a fine difference between stages not between only male and female but also between like in the stages and degrees of autism can one talk about this or is this not um, yeah true? Mm. no you can certainly talk about that because autism um, is essentially a constellation of behaviors Mm-hmm. that all currently come under the label of autism. Mm-hmm. They come under the label of autism because that's what's handy for medical practitioners yes. at the moment. And that's mm. what's handy for education systems. There's nothing to say that in the coming 50 years, mm. they won't separate out. And, and in fact, they're, um, without going into too much detail, in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, um, which is the kind of go-to guide for uh, American psychologists and psychiatrists. <laughs> yeah. Um, up until the, the DSM-4, so the previous edition of the, um, of the DSM did include several different manifestations that all kind of fall under the autistic um, spectrum, such as Asperger's, uh, such as uh, pervasive developmental disorder, mm-hmm. um, uh, autism, and... And, and now they, but now they've kind of preferred to bunch everything in together. So, um, so they're saying, no, you can't necessarily be Aspergian anymore. Um, yeah. it's all autistic, but it's different levels of autism. Uh-huh. Um, and there's this very, I suppose, helpful to the medical system and the education system in terms of groupings, but this kind of high functioning, low functioning divide which I think can be really misleading because what happens is somebody who's deemed to be low functioning is therefore written off in terms of what they can be expected to achieve in their life whereas that person may just not communicate with words Um, so you might have somebody who's a non-speaking autistic person but actually given the right means and given computer technology they can speak more articulately than you or I can um, and then where, and then you can have somebody who appears to be very high functioning, but at what cost does that come to them in terms of mental health? So they're high functioning as in they have a job, they yeah. get up, they feed themselves, but there's, there's nothing to say that there isn't a, a kind of a payoff that takes place on the other side of that in the privacy of that person's home. Um, and what does yeah. it cost them in order to function highly in the world? So they can be they can be misleading in, in both ways because they can do an injustice to, to supposedly low functioning people who actually function very highly, but differently. Mm-hmm. And they can do an injustice. They can do a disservice to high functioning people because then when that person can't function highly, they're kind of blamed because, Oh, you were supposed to be high functioning. So why can't you get your act together? So it's um, somehow where you found yourself, I would then say, you know, kind of following up, sorry to, to stop you there, you know, okay. you, you would have been like a high functioning 
autistic person. So where would you kind of, if you label yourself as such, you know, where did you notice or the relief or um, this is what I heard when I heard you talking about it, like a relief in finding that there is something that determines your reactions and actions in the world. Yeah. yeah. So hmm. I suppose, um, so I lived my childhood in fear. Yeah. And in fear of doing wrong and in fear of failing and in fear of kind of being found out, but I didn't really know what it was anybody was going to find mm. out. I just knew that, um, that I, I, was in a, I was in a world where I felt different and I was the youngest in my family I was, and I was the only girl. So I put it down to that as well. But, um, but even in, in friend groupings, I always felt um, not at odds, but just as if I didn't quite fit and as if there was a certain amount of pretending going on. Mm. So I found a really good friend really early on um, and I was really lucky to do so. But essentially what I did was I learned from her. So my childhood was this like crash course in like mimicking yeah. being a normal person. Yeah. Um, so just whatever she did, I would do. Whatever, wherever she went, I would go. Whoever she was friends with, I would choose them to be my friends. Wow. Um, because I didn't know how to navigate my own world. Um, and, and, I, and that carried on right the way through. Like that became a pattern. So in secondary school, it was the same thing. And um, and it's not to say I didn't like those people, but I chose them kind of as more than friends. They were my role models and they were my templates for how to live. Yeah. And, and you know, and I would have done things like adapt my accent in order to, 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 to emulate the people that were around me mm. because I didn't really have a very rooted sense of who I was beyond that. Yeah. I mean, I had this kind of, obviously everybody has their kind of own inner voice with which they converse with themselves, but that wasn't something that I think I felt safe about bringing out into the outer world, yes. um, if that makes sense. Yes. Um, and I suppose what happens with a lot of um, autistic females, um, they think as many as, so I would have gone through, um, you know, fairly uh, classic teenage eating disorder. Yeah. Um, which I think was put down by a lot of people to, oh, well, you're a ballet dancer, so obviously you don't eat. Mm. Um, but in fact, what happens is it's quite easy to mimic your way through primary school as a girl, but in secondary school, the relationships get much more complex. Um, mm. And that becomes very difficult to maintain a grasp of. And I think what happens in a lot of cases, they think as many as 40% of teenage girls presenting with um, symptoms of anorexia are in fact also autistic. Wow. Um, and that it's less a means of, you know, self-image and all this kind of thing, and more mm. just a means of trying to control something within a world yeah. that doesn't make sense mm. um, to you. And so it's, it's a means of exerting some kind of ownership, I suppose, even if that's ownership of your own yeah. body, and even if that's yeah. um, a destructive force ultimately. Yeah. And um, so I suppose those are the kind of things from a childhood point of view that would be the kind of clear markers. And in my adulthood, I mean, uh, there, there are lots of different things. I mean, there, and there are lots of things about the way my career has been shaped, the way I would go to a certain point with something and then back off it, possibly through anxiety or through just not being clear, not being able to visualize 
a clear route and a clear sense of where I should be within the world. But also socially, I think I've missed out on huge things and missed out on opportunities to travel because unless I can visualize something, unless I can see it, hmm. then it, I find it really terrifying. So, uh, so for, like, for example, I can think of an example um, that involves you where hmm. you had your 40th birthday party. And, yeah. uh, and so I'll get like an invite to the party and I'm like, definitely, definitely going to the party. I'm so going to the party. <laughs> okay. The party is in three weeks. I'm not feeling so good about the party. Oh, the party's in two weeks. Okay. Um, okay. Well, let's just forget about the party for now. I'm sure I'll be able to go to it. Um, the party's in a week. Okay. The party's in a week. The party's in two days. I'm not going. Yeah. Because I don't know who's going to be there. I don't know who's going to talk to me. I don't have a script <sighs> yes. for the conversation. Yes. Uh, and I don't, and so I'll find a reason for work or for something to be busy because for me, one-on-one conversation like this is perfect, but mm. in a group situation, there's too many unpredictable things going on yeah. in that situation for me to manage. Mm. Um, and I suppose the really good thing about the diagnosis is that I can go, okay, what's this going to cost me in terms of energy? Mm. And is it then is it worth making the effort or is it worth actually making you know a month out making the decision actually that's not something I feel up to yeah at the moment and so it's not um I suppose in terms of having the diagnosis it's not really that I want to use it as an excuse for um you know not socializing in a typical way but more that I can go okay knowing what I now know about myself I can make this decision do I go to the party for half an hour Yes. And then I can stay if I want to stay for longer yeah. or, you know, similarly to you know, off the back of the show, I've had invitations to present at conferences and things like that. And that's happened in the past. And I've just always said no, mm. um, because I can't envisage speaking in front of a room full of people unscripted. Yes. Um, but now I can go, OK, well, what are the things that I would need to put in place in order to be able to do that? Mm. I can write a script. You know, if it's a 10 minute presentation, I can write a script and then I can take questions. After wow. That. Then, um, I, you know, I totally bow to you because my podcasts are so <laughs> non prepared and to come on here and talk to me and jump into this conversation. That, that is a huge thing. I mean, my heart really opens up in this, this moment where you tell me about your fears and anxiety, not having been, you know, aware of that might be one of the things we come across, which we're not obviously because you're still talking and are present to this conversation. Um, what, what came to me is that in, in a way to you, this acknowledgement of self is like what a lot of us seek when we go on an inner journey, uh, a journey of self-discovery and how liberating it can be to know who you are because it gives you new perspectives on life. You can clearly define what you want and able of the able for, and then to see where you want to grow, which is your next step of growth. As you said, you know, go into conferences after a play uh, to see how you can dial it in your way. And so I, what I hear you saying is that it's almost like grace when you discover who you are, even if it's just in medical terms, uh, which is then, of course, something we can all either stick to the script or not stick to the script of what people say we are and how we are. But in between those lines, 
I find it's it's much more you know like it's much more clear to, than to any other person. Would you say so or not? Is it like yeah. liberating, and at the same time, is it do or is it more daunting for you? No, it's it's certainly more liberating, mm. um, because it, it's it's um, I suppose I, I'm I'm not so much interested in in autism and disability in, in terms of a pathology model. Yes. So I tend to look at the social model of disability, mm. um, which is the idea that nobody is innately disabled but their circumstances may disable them. Mm. So for example, in Dublin, a wheelchair user is disabled because there's no infrastructure. Yes. But if we were all in wheelchairs and there was no infrastructure for walking, then we would, then the people who were walking would be the disabled people. And yeah. um, so, so autism is yes a disability um, but I tend not to come at it from the kind of idea of thinking of oh I have autism it's mm. more like a kind of a I suppose a blueprint for how you function yeah. um, and uh, and that is in some ways I mean we are all humans we're all more alike than we are different but um, I can see that now I have more in common in terms of how I function and how I make decisions and um my hopes and my fears um run more parallel to this kind of template for life than to the neurotypical hmm. template for how how life is and yeah. what my expectations might be so i suppose what it does is that in terms of being able to visualize things it gives me a little bit of clarity quite a lot of clarity i think yeah and i think yeah. a lot of us like the, the average joe if i might call myself that you know <laughs> or jane is always looking for that kind of template we are all looking for these templates yeah. and in that then, sense i might bring the word jealousy onto the table you know and <laughs> there is like something there where you say okay this is why i do react that way and while somebody like me might go through a long, long journey of visiting astrologers and doing Hatha yoga for a very long time to really yeah. see the patterns. And some of us go to um, psychotherapists to understand those patterns that might not be so clearly defined as an aspect of functioning or dysfunctioning, yeah. whatever you, you want to call it. I'm, I don't, I'm not for labels myself. Yeah. So, it's interesting that you mentioned the word patterns because patterns are something um, that I have like lived my life by mm. and I can see them really clearly, um, you know, in myself and in other people as well. Um, but it's, it's one of the kind of key autistic traits is the ability to see patterns um, and, to, uh, and to recognize patterns and to see, you know, symmetry and, you know, both in a, in a literal context, but also in a, in a kind of um, life context, I suppose, as well. Yeah, and so let's, yeah, thank you for that. And I do see patterns as well, you know, of maybe course, I should get yes, tested. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, where I have my fears and anxieties, and we all do have that. But yeah. um, let's use the last minutes of the show to talk a little bit about your show, What I sure. Don't Know About Autism, which is what you call a relaxed performance. Would you like to tell us a little bit what's at the heart of the show and what people can expect if it's been staged? somewhere they are near to mm -hmm. yeah of course um so 
Um, at the heart of the show, I suppose, um, are two things. Um, one is the, what I said earlier about the wish to promote autism acceptance. And the other is the wish to celebrate autistic identity. Mm. Um, so autism is something that was hidden away for a long time. You know, if you go back to the time of eugenics or, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it, any, any difference was enough to have you institutionalized or in some very sinister cases killed. Um, so what I wanted to do was to reverse that and put autistic people on stage and make that a joyful thing rather than a tragedy because the media just loves to portray the kind of autism tragedy narrative. Um, and I think it's so destructive for, it's so destructive for anybody getting a diagnosis and so destructive for parents of um, children who get a diagnosis to feel like there's all this doom mm-hmm. around it when there's an entirely different narrative that you can explore if you're, you know, if you're, if you're guided towards it. Um, so the play itself is, again, this is one of the things that's changed, I suppose, since my diagnosis is that I spent a lot of time in my 20s and 30s trying to write really good plays and really good plays according to what other people measured as good plays. Um, and now I write what I want to write. Um, and so I'm not so hung up on form and structure um, or, you know, trying to make it like a show that somebody else made or anything like that. I'm just, okay, what's the content that I have to say and what's the best form in which to contain that content? Um, so this particular um, piece consists of 26 different scenes and yeah. each of them explores a different aspect of autism. Um, and it takes away a lot of the kind of the pretense and the mystery of theater. So a lot of it is about kind of making, I suppose, making performance pedestrian, not that it's not, you know, beautiful in, in places. And we worked a lot with choreographer and there's a lot of dance and movement in it, but it, that we're not trying to kind of hide the work in mm. a sense. So when the audience comes in, they can see the 26 scenes written up there each one of them has a title and they're written up on either side of the stage so they know at every point in the show okay this is how many scenes have gone and this is how many scenes are still to come and part of that is about managing people's um, anxieties because one of the things that I felt was that if I was going to make a show with autistic actors um about autism that aims to celebrate autistic identity, then I want autistic people to be able to come to see it. Yes. And, uh, and theaters are sometimes just not kind places for autistic people to be mm-hmm. um, because it's unpredictable, because you can't tell when a loud noise is going to happen, because you don't know the story in advance, um, yeah. because you're sitting in close proximity with people who, um, you who could be complete strangers because they might ring the bell really loudly at the interval all those kind of things can become really prohibitive and can keep somebody out of a theater for their life um, and so what i wanted to do was to kind of strip back all that um, and i've been doing a lot of work which i probably haven't talked to you about in disability settings over the last couple of years for mm-hmm. separate projects um, but one of the things i felt with those shows as well is you know it, it's not that hard to make theatre accessible. Um, and once you lay out the kind of new rules really clearly, they work for everybody. They work yeah. for disabled people and they work for neurotypical audiences. So when the audience come in for the show, one of the first things we tell them is that it's a relaxed performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and a relaxed performance means, in this context, 
that the house lights will remain on all the way through the show at a low level, but people will always be able to see. So no matter what happens with the lights on stage, the audience will always be able to see. If somebody needs to leave the performance uh, during the show, that's fine, but they can also come back in again. So there's none of that kind of, you will not be readmitted stuff going on. Um, And if there's a loud noise coming up, we tell the audience that there's a loud noise coming up. Or if there's a dramatic lighting change coming up, we tell the audience that there's a dramatic lighting change coming up. Um, And one of the big things actually is taking the onus off the kind of regular law abiding theater audience to police performances. Cause you know, the way, you know, if you're at a show and somebody suddenly takes out their phone and starts texting, you know, everybody's going to give them dirty looks or tell them to put it away or, and similarly, you know, for autistic people, stimming and um, self-stimulatory behavior, such as, you know, flapping or um, repetitive gestures or tapping their fingers or tapping their foot or, you know, they can be much bigger and and louder than that. But we wanted people to be able to stim in the auditorium if they needed to. So that was kind of more about saying to the the typical theatre going audience, if the person beside you is moving around or making noise during the performance, we're okay with that. So you don't feel like you have to mind the actors. We're telling you now that we're okay with it. So you sit back, worry about your experience of the show and let everybody else experience it in their own way. And the beautiful thing I think was the, the realness of the relationship that we had with audiences as a result, mm-hmm. because we had a very direct and a very personal contact with them right from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And we check in with them at various times during the show. So we have two opportunities for the audience to ask us questions about the play during the show. So at about kind of a third of the way through and then about two thirds of the way through. Um, and so it set up a kind of, even though actually in a way people would say, oh, you're taking all the magic away. Um, it set up something far more magical, which was a real connection between the people on stage and the people in the audience. And a really set a sense, I suppose, of them being empowered and involved hmm. in that experience. And then the other thing that we did, which annoyed some people, but I think, you know, for good reason, um, (laughs) was that we asked people not to clap Hmm. at the end because I had um, an experience on a different thing that I was working on um, where Mm -hmm. I was partnered. I was writing a play for a service user at an adult disability day center in Blanchardstown. And we went to the kind of introductory day and everybody's clapping all the way through. And every time uh, everybody clapped, uh, my partner would jump mm. out of his chair and be frightened and it would hurt mm. him and it was an assault on him. Um, and, and he wasn't free to leave because he can't push his own wheelchair. So he was dependent on somebody else to push yeah. him out. And that wasn't happening at yeah. that moment. So I really wanted to try to see if there's another way of, of doing it because you know we're, we're indoctrinated into this okay somebody does something good let's all applaud but that's only a social construct it's not that we have to applaud in order to show appreciation there are other ways and um, so at the end of the play we ask the audience not to clap and we say that if they would like to do something then they can maybe try giving us a flap instead mm. Mm. and that was a really beautiful moment because um it was beautiful because some people like some nights people would be wearing bangles that made mm-hmm. this a faint ah. um, but it was this incredible moment of hush 
at the end instead of this kind of thunderous applauding that kind of dissipates all the energy I feel um, in a sense but then some people were like yes but we really wanted to clap and you denied us that opportunity um so we do so, have that um if i might interrupt you there yeah. we um my daughter she is going to, to a school where they also have like all sorts of handicapped um, kids and when they do performances we all like for the um uh, how do you say that for the non you don't say deaf anymore you say yeah no we do we say deaf yeah yeah, yeah. oh i know yeah, i know we, the we, deaf we, applause yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 that's yeah where we yeah. just wave the hands in the air yeah. so this is how we applaud and the first time i saw it i was so touched you know it was just yeah. so much more than the clap 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 and yeah. you think like how loud how much louder can i clap yeah, <laughs> and here exactly. you think you're like how much longer can i shake my hands <laughs> yeah we wheel that yeah. down so Coming to an end of this beautiful conversation with you, I feel inspired because I heard two things that are truly valid on a growth path and a spiritual growth path to me. And these are, you know, do the things you want to do and don't try to fit in and you will have success because as far we haven't touched upon it, but uh, you said that the shows were sold out way, way before they came on stage. So to me, it sounds there was this shift in you which made your work public in that moment of time because you came with it from a heart space where you want mm. to to create something that is really in you and not where you're trying to serve somebody and the other thing that i heard is that we have to stop trying to entertain people which really annoys me a lot you know i recently wrote this blog article on boredom and because okay. i think we're so overstimulated and it with the overstimulation we always um, escape connection And you talked about this right now, you know, like when we are just being performed to, then we are absorbing and digest, uh, digesting and instead of exchanging. And this we need much more in the world. So in my eyes, you have really contributed a lot to, to this growth path of society through your own journey in that sense. Well, hopefully, yeah. We'll see what <laughs> happens next. It's interesting about the overstimulation thing. I really noticed it. I am... Um, I was, I was really well during the show and I was really well after the show. And normally, you know, you kind of get this crash. Yeah. Um, but I had been kind of really eating well and making sure that I was sleeping well and not drinking any caffeine or alcohol. And so mm -hmm. I was feeling super healthy. And, uh, and then last Wednesday, I woke up and the whole room was moving oh. around me. And uh, I was like, okay, well, this is surely going to pass. But it didn't. And it turned out that I had vertigo. Uh, which I've never experienced before and hope not to again. Um, but it meant that I was stuck mm -hmm. uh, horizontal for yeah. two days. Oh. And, you know, it was the first day was too sick to have any stimulation. Um, mm. And you don't realize until you're forced to stop what stopping really means. And yes. just how kind of sustained you are in your day, even if it's not through, you know, stimulants like food or alcohol or caffeine, um, but like screens and conversation yes. and constant chats. And, yes. and so to, to stop was a really, I mean, I would like to stop when I'm not feeling like I'm going to throw up and that the world is going to end. <laughs> but, um, but it was still really enlightening. Um, and particularly in retrospect, just that feeling of going, ah, okay. I just had to pull out this 
for the next 24 hours or until whenever this passes. And um, so it is, I think we're, we're highly overstimulated people, you know, and we the are. media feeds that yeah. and, um, it's, it's very difficult just to, just to go, okay, I'm just going to slow down a little. Yeah. I definitely try to slow people down as you know in my program yeah. mm -hmm. and you're trying to open the world to new perspectives and in case you want to hook up or see and read more about what jody does you can do so at her website about about autism.ie uh, you'll find the link in the text below And so I want to say a warm-hearted thank you again to you, Jody, for making this leap with me into a, you know, unpredictable conversation we're going to have ah. on this show. <laughs> thank It's you my pleasure. <laughs> and thank you for listening and tune back in for our next episode. If you enjoy listening to my podcast, please consider to become a patron at patreon.com slash alexandrakreis and pledge your donation.